0: Of the members of the corinthian church they were of course acting and thinking that that tongues was really the only spiritual gift that had any kind of value and the only one that they should really go after and so the whole church is engaged in trying to pursue after this gift and of course this stirred up divisions with those who had never been given that gift by god and so the tongue speakers thought they were kind of superior to those who didn't um, at the end of chapter 12, Paul exhorted the Corinthians to earnestly desire the higher gifts, and that would be gifts that are more effective than tongues at building up the body of Christ. That was in chapter 12, verse 31. So he kind of shoots down their whole pursuit and says, look, there are spiritual gifts that, that you could be pursuing that will enable you or help you be more of a blessing more constructive to the body of Christ than tongues. And so that was uh, just probably a mind-blowing moment for the Corinthians who were obsessed with that gift. Then in chapter 13, Paul exhorted the Corinthians to keep love at the center of their lives and service and and ministry because it is the highest spiritual virtue uh, because it makes believers most like their heavenly Father who is God is love, right? So, and that was in chapter 13, verse 13. And then we know God um, is the God of love. And then when we are loving, we are like him. And we learn about that in 1 John four sixteen as well. So ultimately, their pursuit of tongues made them very unloving toward everyone else, very div- divisive or divisive and all this. And so Paul in chapter 12 hammers them for going after the gift only and then for not being loving in chapter 13. And then in the next section, Paul returns to the subject of higher gifts, and he builds a case for the spiritual gift of prophecy, which he describes as higher than tongues. We need to understand that his goal was not to diminish the spiritual gift of tongues in any way, because that would be like diminishing the Holy Spirit, who gives that gift, or who gave that gift back in the first century. Um, So, you know, Paul he has to condemn their behavior without condemning the gift. And sometimes I think we blur the two together and we end up condemning the gift and God when, in fact, all we're trying to do is point out particular behaviors. And so Paul is is very cautious, but he has to hammer their behavior and expose that without harming the gift itself. And he doesn't want to bring any sort of reproach on the Holy Spirit who gives all of the gifts. He gave tongues then, he gives. The gift of prophecy, even today, what is prophecy? It's just expository preaching or teaching that's effective. We know he gives all the gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 11. So his goal was to diminish the Corinthians' unholy obsession with the gift of tongues and to call out and to expose their selfish pursuits because... They wanted the gift of tongues not to build up the body, but for themselves, because it brought up a lot of attention and accolades and built up their egos and these sorts of things. He wants them to see that there are other spiritual gifts that are much better suited for building up the body of Christ, which is literally part of their mission and our mission. How how do you think we make disciples? I mean, first of all, we evangelize, we make disciples of every nation, but how do you think we teach disciples to obey all that Christ commanded? We use our spiritual gifts to engage in that. So this whole situation here wasn't just a matter of, you know, not being as loving as they should have been or obsessing with a gift. They literally were not on mission because the mission of the church is to make disciples and you have to properly use your spiritual gifts to do that. They're not properly using the gifts. They only think there's one that should they should go after. So this whole church, the more we study this church, the more I realize just how jacked up it is. And then I start thinking about it and it's like, but that's how jacked up I am. So it's not like they're setting some sort of precedent. It's just what we do in our fallen nature. So with that being said, we're going to move into the next section where he Again lay siege to their unholy obsession with tongues by showing a higher gift and the effect of the higher gift and that gift is prophecy. But I'll say this and I won't say it right now to the extent that I would, but the goal of the chapter really isn't to show the preeminence of prophecy over tongues or anything else. There's a deeper, more profound, more poignant point to it that we'll talk about toward the very end. So with that being said please take your bibles and turn to first corinthians i have a lot to cover today i've got to do chapter fourteen verses one to nineteen but it is very simple the text is very simple and hopefully i can just get it all done for you this is only going to be a, all these verses and this is only a two-point sermon i could i could only come up with two points so um, don't blame the holy spirit that's my fault it's not a three-point sermon i'm not passing the rules of preaching this morning by not having three points um, but anyways, let's pray and get to work. Oh, there will be some subpoints, though, I, I guess in a sense, but Father, thank you for the word this morning and all that you've led us in so far and the joy that we have as we engage you, Lord. And I pray that you help us now to just focus on your word and to hear your word, to believe your word, to apply your word and to live your word. It does us no good to be mere hearers. We need to be doers. And I think the hearing part's pretty easy for us. The doing part's where the real challenge is. But we have the Holy Spirit, we have these spiritual gifts and things that enable us to serve one another, and we just want to have a right view of the gifts, a right view of love, a right view of you ultimately, a right view of ourselves. And so uh, we sort of just submit ourselves to you, to your authority now under your word. Not my word, these are your words, and so your word is the authority, not my word. And so may we yield and submit to your word now, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we got to pick up where we left off on September 3rd. That's the last time we were in this series. And I do want to thank the guys for covering as I moved. And by the way, um, I could have used another two weeks because uh, I'm not done. I'm done moving stuff over. But Rachel, this morning's all, I have a list of things I want you to do. This is like three seconds after I've opened my eyes. Like I just woke up. And she's like, I have a list of things that that we need to do. And I'm like, could I take my third breath, you know? and And she's like, But I put time in on this list. you know. So I listen to her list, and I'm like, oh, Bruce is going to be doing the painting. Uh, Jared, if there's anything else to move, I'll have him do that, because he's the best at that. I'm just trying to figure out how to delegate while I sit back with a Mai Tai. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, big, big list of stuff. But anyways, let's pick up where we left off. Thanks, guys, for covering the pulpit. You did a great job. The first thing that we want to look at, two points. The first thing that we are going to look at is number one, and that is the priority of believers. The priority, there's two P's here for two points. The priority of believers, and we see this in the very first portion of verse one. This is the priority, this is like our prevailing top priority as believers. No matter what, this is the high thing that we're to be aiming at. Verse 1a, pursue love. You could literally stop there and preach a thousand sermons. Pursue love. And then he adds, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Keep in mind that he's already described the supremacy of love in chapter 13, right? And now he hits them with an application. He's talked about what love is and how it's supreme and above all other things. And now he's literally applying what he just said throughout all of chapter 13. In chapter 13, it's like he's saying, Here's what love is. And now in chapter 14, verse 1a, he's saying, here's what I want you to do with it. Here's the truth. Here's the application. Here's what love is. Here's what you are to do. You are to pursue love. And the Greek word for pursue is uh, dioko, or dioko, and it, it basically means to follow, right? Pursue. Think of it in terms of Greek, to follow, to even hunt, and to chase after with intensity. So the Greek word behind our English word pursue, pursue doesn't sound very aggressive, but when you think of it in terms of the Greek, which has a much broader meaning always, chase after with intensity. He is saying chase after love with intensity. Above all else, as Paul emphasized in the previous chapter, the Corinthians should chase after love, should hunt love, should follow after love, should pursue love. In other words, love is their main top priority. And that is a universal rule, not just for the Corinthians who didn't seem to understand what love is at all. It's, it's for all time and for all believers. Love is our main goal, the main thing that we go after. It is our top priority. It's the top priority of all believers. And John MacArthur points out something about the Corinthian church. He says, lovelessness was by far their greatest problem, to which all of their other problems were related in one way or another. The only strong affection many of the Corinthians had was for themselves. Oh, they had plenty of love in that church. It was just self-love. It wasn't love for your brother or sister. It was love for you. And that's why I want the tongue. So I love myself so much. I've got so much self-esteem and so much self-love. I want that gift for myself so so I can draw more people and attention to myself. It's just pride is all it is. That was their problem, lovelessness. But it was inspired or driven by self-pride. Pride is behind it all. We talked about that, I think, on the third. Now, We must understand what type of love Paul is referring to here in this text, because believe it or not, especially in the Greek portion of of the New Testament, well, the whole thing is Greek, but in the New Testament, not in the Hebrew, but in the New Testament, there are different types of love. There are different Greek words for love. So what kind of love was Paul talking about here? Was he talking about eros? That's sexual love. Well, if he's talking about that, that's just perverted. He's not talking about eros, right? No, he wasn't talking about eros love. Was he talking about phileo? Phileo, that's brotherly love. Think of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's derived from a Greek word. Was he talking about brotherly love? No, no, that's not the Greek word here either, but that's closer to the mark, much closer than sexual love. No, 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 the Greek word here is agape, agape. What is agape love? That's the love of God. That is sacrificial love, best demonstrated by Christ stepping out of glory and coming down here, condescending to live just as we lived, yet without sin, perfectly without sin, to die a bloody, horrific death on the cross, to be buried, to rise again in three days. That is the agape love of God demonstrated through Christ, who is God. That's the kind of love that he's talking about here. It's the, the love of the good shepherd who does what? Lays down his life for his sheep. Amen? That's the kind of love he's talking about. That's John 10, love. Paul is saying, chase after the same love Christ has shown you. Hunt it down, follow after it until it saturates every part of your lives and ministries. That's what he's saying. Chase it down, hunt it, grab it, make it part of your life, keep it there at the center of your life. Look to Christ, who is the greatest example of agape love. Now, notice what it says in the second half of verse 1a, right? Because we could really divide it in half, pursue love. Then he says something else right after that. The fact that that love is primary does not mean that everything else is to be disregarded, right? Right? He wants them to pursue love, but he also says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. See, it's the, the passion for and the pursuit of spiritual gifts that got them in trouble, but it's not that in and of itself that's sinful, it's the attitude and the pride behind it. It's not wrong to desire after spiritual gifts. You just have to have the right motive and the right mindset. That's what they didn't have. They weren't pursuing love when they were pursuing gifts. If any kind of love was being pursued it was what? Self-love. That's why they wanted the gifts because of self-love. Not because of Steve love or Sharon love or dare I say Cameron love? I love Cameron. Believe me. The strong desire the Corinthians had for spiritual gifts it was not wrong in and of itself. It was that it was selfishly directed toward the showy gifts that that brought a lot of attention, like tongues, and that could even be said of today. They were right to have desired spiritual gifts. Paul doesn't condemn the desire for them or the pursuit of them, but their concern should have been for using those gifts to build up the body of Christ, not their own egos and reputations and, and what have you. So they were not pursuing love and chasing after the gifts for the wrong reasons. That's the systemic problem here. And we know it's driven by pride. Paul says you pursue love. If you do that first, then it's perfectly fine to pursue spiritual gifts. Because the spiritual gifts are tools that will help you love others. But you see, you've got to get that first part right. And I think with us, even if we're we're Christians and we've been regenerated and we're new people, that's still a challenge, isn't it, to keep love at the center of what we do? Because that pride and that old man or that old woman, dare I say, creeps in and causes us just want to do things for our own pleasure or for our own glory. That was their problem. So he's fine with it. You pursue love. Notice how that's first. And if you do that, then it's okay to earnestly desire gifts. Because you're pursuing love, you're pursuing the gifts properly. And he knows that you're going to use the gifts for the right reasons. And that is to extend love to those who will be the recipients of all your good service. So they have the right desire to go after Him, just the wrong motive. Okay, so the first thing is the priority of believers. And that is love, always love. That's the first thing for us maybe that's something that when we wake up in the morning and you're not given a list of new things to do actually I had to pursue love in that moment nobody should be giving me a list of anything to do when I haven't had coffee yet six cups to be exact no but I mean maybe when we wake up in the morning I need to pursue love today. It's it's something that I don't think comes naturally to us fallen creatures. Maybe some of us have, you know, are more inclined to be more gentle and loving. Bruce, you know, whatever. Bruce, he just does everything so well for Christ. Maybe it's because he's been in the Lord for 261 years. I don't know. He feels like it. So do I. But, uh, you know, just... I got to remind myself when's the best time to remind yourself to pursue love when you don't feel loving when somebody challenges you and you're upset so this is something that we really got to work at it's not an easy thing to do but that's firstly the first thing all right number two now the second point the preeminence of prophecy and this is what we see in the rest of the verses 1b to 19 that's why there's only two points and it's just so long here After admonishing the Corinthians to pursue love, encouraging them to pursue love, and then to go ahead and eagerly desire spiritual gifts so they can love one another and build up the church, Paul now exhorts them to set their sights on the higher gift or the preeminent gift, the spiritual gift of prophecy. Obviously, we've talked about these gifts a lot, and I don't want to be a broken record, but he's talking about expositional prophecy, not revelatory. Expositional prophecy, it's a gift that God gives. He also gave the gift of revelatory. Revelatory is where you're revealing truth, really, for the first time, and that was something only the apostles had, and once the scripture's done, that gift's gone. But expositional is like what's happening right now with me in the pulpit. It's when somebody takes the word of God and explains it in a way that the people can understand it. Believe me, I'm not the first person in history to have this gift. There's a long line of preachers and evangelists and some of you even have it. Maybe you don't use it in a pulpit, but you've used it somewhere else at a Christmas party or something like that. But it's just the ability to be able to explain the word of God effectively so it pierces the heart. And that's what it is and that's what he's talking about here. It is a continuing gift that God gives to pastors and a great many other people, whereas revelatory prophecy was only given to select people, and it ceased with the apostles. Paul wanted them to eagerly desire, firstly to love, but then secondly to eagerly desire prophecy because it is the, a higher gift than tongues. It's above tongues If there was a pyramid of gifts, it would be the pinnacle gift up at the top. Tongues would be way down here, lower on the ladder, lower on the pyramid. And that's kind of a shocking thing to hear if you have a charismatic background or anything because they put the emphasis entirely on tongues and everything. And Paul says so plainly here that this one is preeminent. It's above that. On the pyramid, it would be at the very top. It's the pinnacle. Now... It is preeminent, and we have to ask, why is that? Well, the answers are found in Paul's divinely inspired infallible argumentation in verses 2 to 19. He argues for why it's preeminent in the rest of the text. So now we can move to verses 2 to 3, because we're staying under this point. Listen to what he says. I mean, he says it himself. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Now listen to what he says in verse three. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. There's the first point, subpoint of preeminence, why prophecy is preeminent. Take into consideration when tongues was such a Um, widespread gift in this church and so many people wanted it, so many people had it and then so many people wanted it, take this into consideration that there wasn't a single interpreter in this church. Verse 5, that's where he says it. You've got all these tongues which are just, they're just human languages that are being spoken and there's nobody there to interpret any of these languages. This would be like stepping into a congregation and you only speak English, and they only speak French. I'm a Frenchman. I can only listen to French for about five minutes before I'm going, because it just, it just, I, I couldn't handle it. But imagine sitting in that context and for an hour of a sermon and not being able to understand what's going on and just looking at all these Frenchmen going, wee 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 ha, <laughs> ha, ha, right? We, they agree. Would that be frustrating? That's what it was like at this church. You had this guy blasting off in whatever language and this guy blasting off in this language and this gal over here, and nobody knows what's being said anywhere. It must have been like the agra, like a market where you have all these different, you know, it's like a cultural melting pot, but you had no everyone's speaking in these languages, but nobody knows what's going on. When someone spoke in tongues in this church, and it was quite a few people, there was no interpretation, there was no understanding. And Paul says the tongue speakers were, in a sense, speaking only to God, right? He says it right there. They're speaking not to men, but to God. What does he mean there? He means that God is the only one that understands what they're saying because he knows all languages. He gives all languages. He created all languages. When somebody blasts off in Arabic and nobody there knows what's going on, God knows Arabic. So in a way, they are praying or whatever they're doing in their tongue speaking only to God because he's the only one capable of understanding. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, I tell you this, that would be an opportunity to show off. Look at how I just prayed to God in tongues. Don't you wish you could do that? Well, I I certainly wish I could. I also kind of wish I knew what you were saying. Well, God knows and that's all that matters. I mean, this is the attitude there and this is what's happening. They were speaking only to God because he's the only one that could interpret. He knows all languages. Now, let me ask you this. If people in the church, especially that church, they couldn't understand what was being said, there's no interpretation, how could they possibly be built up? You can't be built up if you don't understand what's being said. The words are intended. The purpose of the gifts is to build up. And if you can't understand what's being said, how are you being built up? I kind of feel like you're being built down. And getting frustrated because you can't understand. When there's a language barrier, isn't that frustrating? I don't sit there and go, this is wonderful. I have no idea what this cat's saying. If you can't understand, how are you being built up? (coughs) Logically, you have to understand what's being said. You have to understand the words to be built up. This is Paul's point. And yet with prophecy, there's no need for interpretation. Prophecy is the exposition of God's word in the language of the people. And it's given to build up and it's given to encourage and it's given to console is what Paul says. In Corinth, tongues were being spoken to God alone because no one could understand. But when a spirit-filled preacher entered the pulpit or what have you and prophesied from God's word, that whole body was built up. Now, I don't think that there was any need for any kind of interpretation because he's explaining the Word of God, but maybe there is a little room for explanation or application, but that's different. Somebody's prophesying, they're pointing their words at you and you understand their words and it, you understand what's being said and it's coming from God's word and it's building you up it's challenging you it's consoling you when you're sad it's encouraging you when you're discouraged and it's doing all this and then over here on the other side of the auditorium you have somebody ripping off and blasting away in tongues and nobody has any idea as to what's going on there but with this guy who's preaching the word I know exactly what's going on which gift is preeminent the prophecy That's what Paul's point is. Because of the gift of prophecy, believers are taught and reproofed and corrected and trained in righteousness. They're brought nearer to completion. They're equipped for every good work. Everything that 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says happens through the proclamation of the word, through the gift of prophecy. It's happening. But with the tongues, there's just nothing going on. I guess God is being built up. And thank goodness for that because our God is just not mature enough or adequate like God would need to be built up? Come on now. That's verses 2 and 3. Verse 4. So he's already hammering tongues and exalting prophecy. Verse 4, he continues, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. That might be the most, I wouldn't say damning, but that might be the most convicting statement in the whole section. The one who speaks in tongues is just doing it for self. The one who prophesies isn't doing it for self, he's doing it for the benefit of those who are listening. And that is aimed directly at the Corinthians because that's exactly what they were doing. When they spoke in tongues, it was about building up their egos and their reputations. And he says, you know, but there's a selfishness in that. You guys are misusing the gift. And there's a selflessness in prophecy because it's about Diane and Rachel. And everyone in this room about building them up through the exposition of the word. This is exactly what he's saying. And I think it's just pure sarcasm here. You know, tongues, it has to be accompanied by interpretation to do any good whatsoever. Right? And without interpretation, a tongue cannot, some foreign language, it cannot do anything. It can't build up anyone. It really can't even build up the person speaking it, because they, in a general way, didn't know what they were saying. It's a supernatural occurrence. They're speaking in Spanish all of a sudden, and they never studied a lick of Spanish. They don't have Babel. At the Tower of Babel, that fell, but they don't have Babel, the Bible, or the language program. So there's there's nothing good that's coming out of the tongues here. The one who speaks in a tongue, he wasn't literally building himself up Spiritually, because he himself or she herself doesn't know what's being said. There's no interpretation. So they don't even know what's going on. They just think it looks impressive. And you've got to understand that when he says it's about building the self up, that, that is a condemnation. The gifts were never given for, for self-edification, You're not given spiritual gifts by God for your own good. They're given for the benefit and good of the body as a whole and for individual believers. They're given so you can bless other believers. They're not given so you can bless yourself. And that's in this verse here. That's that's what he's saying in verse 4. And I don't even think they were actually utilizing the actual uh, manifested gift from the spirit. I think this was a false version of tongues, that gibberish, ecstatic speech, because that was very popular in Corinth at the time, especially in the pagan temples. So so not only are they not helping anyone with their tongues, they may even be mimicking and copying some pagan version that it does literally less than nothing, except it makes those who were speaking ecstatic gibberish or some language that nobody knows they think it makes them look good and I have a more of a manifestation of the spirit here than you do because look at how I can exercise this gift it's all about pride it's all about ego they're not chasing after love self-love when these tongue speakers spoke in tongues You know, it literally did build up their egos and reputations as ignorant onlookers marveled at their abilities and just heaped on all the praise. Wow, did you see what Sam can do? That's unbelievable. Well, I really would like to be able to do that. So that's the problem here with tongues. But the one who prophesies, it's it's a completely different category. His ministry builds up, not himself, but it builds up the church. Now, we do see a, a bit of a problem with that today where... These rock star pastors are using the pulpit and their preaching abilities and the gifts that they have to create quite a following for themselves and to get super high paychecks and to do all these other things. And so that problem does exist today. But certainly you could take the gift of prophecy and abuse it just as you could tongues or anything else to for self-you know glorification. We're not saying that's not true, but here Paul, he's not looking at prophecy that way. It's something that's done for others. It builds up the church. That's what solid exposition of the text does. Builds up the body of Christ, and I would say like nothing else. I mean, when when a man preaches the Word of God from the pulpit and the Holy Spirit is there moving and working through him and working in the hearts of those who are listening, there's just nothing like it. What else can build up the body like that? How can you even build up the body without the Word of God? 99% of the time today when somebody is speaking in tongues, it doesn't have anything to do with the word. It's just, I've got a word for you from God, and he wants you to have a great day. Well, I don't need God to inspire that in me. I can say that on my own. Most of the time when somebody's speaking in tongues today, and I told you they've already ceased, they went away with Paul or the apostles, but when they say they're doing it today, they're not even citing scripture. They're just saying something like, I, I remember one time a guy said, uh, you know, um, I feel like I have the gift of tongues, and, and God said through me, and I'm not even sure what the language was, but I had the impression of what he was saying. It was, I want you to go sit on that log over there. Apparently, he was down by the river, down by the river living in a van, right? No, not that, but he was down by the river, and I think he was condom, you know, he was just he was in contemplative prayer or something and he felt like God was speaking a tongue to him like God speaks in these tongues too like he's the giver of the gifts he doesn't need them but somehow he's being told in some kind of tongue that he doesn't normally understand now he has the impression that God is saying I want you to go sit on that log over there I'll tell you what nothing builds up the church than when you tell stories about how God's told you to sit on a log don't you feel edified (laughs) senseless gibberish i mean it just it's worthless today all these things are passing for these things and this was happening in the corinthian church so what does that tell us it tells us that solomon is a genius there is nothing new under the sun Two thousand years ago people were still doing the same stupid stuff they're doing it today prophecy is a whole different game though it's a whole different thing it builds up it builds up like nothing else That's why the reformers restored the pulpit to center stage and moved the communion tables off to the side. How many of you were Roman Catholic at one time or you've been to a Roman Catholic service, a mass? What's in the middle of the stage, the communion table? Because the highest thing they do is allegedly convert the bread and juice into the literal body and blood. So communion table's at the center. Preaching is not at the center. The reformers, and this is how it was during the 1500s, the reformers said the communion table, not that communion isn't important, but it's going back over to the side where it should be, and we're going to start building some really cool pulpits that are way up in the air. Not to exalt the preacher, but to exalt the word of God. The reformers brought the pulpits back in. Why? Because they understood the value of the gift of prophecy. This is why Luther, who was one of the great reformers, called... Uh, Singing, because that's when they kind of first started really singing hymns in a worship service. It predates that, but this is when it really came about. That's why he calls singing to the Lord the handmaiden of preaching, because preaching has to do with the gift of prophecy, which builds up the church like nothing else. They put such a high premium on the gift of prophecy, and they should. It is the pinnacle gift. It's why we place such a high premium on expositional preaching here at RHC because we understand its value. It builds up the church. The word builds up the church. Prophecy is preeminent because it is aimed at believers and it builds them up whereas tongues were being aimed at God and only built up individual egos and reputations and I would say sadly like in many Pentecostal circles today. Verse 5 Now, I want you, this is is where I'm like, Paul, don't play games with me, okay? If I could talk to this guy, someday I will. He'll say, shut your mouth and bow before the throne. I'll say, i got a question for you, dude. What are you doing here in verse 5 back there? He'll say, shame on you for not understanding. But look at what he says. This is bizarre. He says, now I want you all to speak in tongues. (laughs) What? You've just been telling them that that that's not what they should be going after. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but then he says, but even more to prophesy, okay? So it's like he says something, and then he's not correcting, but you'll get, we'll get to the meaning of it. And then he says, And then he says this again. He goes back to that same argument. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. All right, this is just, this is one of those things where I'm trying, I was, first I was like, I don't understand here. Paul has been showing the inferiority of tongues, right? That's all it has been doing. Why would he now want every Christian, uh, every Corinthian to speak in tongues? Another thing, too, is that Paul knew that not all Christians will have the spiritual gift of tongues, or they'll even have the same spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 20, that's what he said. The Spirit gives many different gifts to many different individuals. He doesn't give everyone the gift of tongues. He didn't then. He doesn't give everyone the gift of So he knows if he's saying... I want all of you to have it. It's like he's contradicting what he's already said. How can he desire something that he knows will never happen because God's not going to give everyone the exact same gift? That is a contradiction of the Spirit's work. What are you doing here, Paul? Does the Bible have contradictions? No. I think what he was actually doing here is wishing for the impossible for the sake of emphasis. Paul did not want to be seen, known as, or received as a quote-unquote tongues hater, right? I mean, if you're you're challenging people because they're obsessed with something, you want to challenge the obsession, not the thing they're obsessed with, if it's a good thing. And tongues in this day and that day was a good thing. Again, remember, he wants to be careful not to condemn the gift or the one who gives it, the spirit, but their behavior. And so now what he's doing is he's kind of, he's not backtracking, but he's showing that I don't despise the gift of tongues. In fact, I wish all of you had it. He's trying to just make clear that he doesn't despise the genuine gift of tongues, the true manifestation of the Spirit. In other words, wanting everyone to have tongues, which he knows is impossible, but he's still expressing it as some kind of a desire. Wanting everyone to have tongues affirms what? His belief in tongues and his his respect for the gift of tongues his respect for the gift uh, for the Holy Spirit who gives the gift so he's not backtracking he's not contradicting he's just simply stating that he's trying to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. oh so this guy just hates the gift of tongues you know what would the Corinthians do if they thought that then they would in turn hate the gift of tongues you're not supposed to hate the gifts you're supposed to hate your dumb behavior right adventures and missing the point This happens all the time. And notice how he really clarifies his point. He pivots back to the pinnacle, doesn't he? What's the pinnacle gift? But even more to prophesy. His truest desire was for the Corinthians to long for a spiritual gift that could do the most good. Again, prophecy did much more good than tongues. And then in the second half of verse 5, he launches another salvo, at their pride by declaring the greater of the two, right? They thought tongues, you know, speaking in tongues was the zenith or highest form of Christian expression and service, literally. Like you've reached the peak of Christianity when you speak in tongues. This is a view of modern-day charismatics today in fact some of them will go as far as to say you're not even truly saved until you speak in tongues cuz tongues are gonna follow salvation no you know what follows salvation love for God obedience to his word well 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 that's secondary to tongues no it isn't its first but they thought it was the Zenith and the highest form the highest expression of Christianity And why is that because that is the result of their culture cultural influence within many of the mystery religions ecstatic speaking was thought to be the language of the gods the corinthians had either carried this belief over from when they were unbelievers or they had sadly adopted it as it became a new church they integrated that kind of view in that if i just get into this kind of transic state and, and start if i do that that i'm actually not just speaking to god i'm speaking the language of god this is their thought They carried the belief over. They adopted it. But in any case, they thought this ecstatic gibberish was the language of the gods. And therefore, if you were doing it, you were like the gods. You were like God himself and speaking his own language. It's amazing. When you look back through the Bible, he always speaks in languages that people know, not gibberish. Hebrew. Paul is saying tongue speakers, what he's really saying is tongue speakers are not at the top like you think they are. You're not way up there like you think you are. No, actually the one who prophesies is at the top. Not the one who speaks in a language, especially when they think it's the language of God. What kind of nonsense is that? He says the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in a tongue But notice the stipulation he puts toward the end of the verse. Paul says a tongue speaker can actually reach that higher level, but only when there is interpretation, and only when that interpretation builds up the church. Uh, Sadly, again, there is interpretation of tongues. Sometimes today, I don't think there are real tongues, but sometimes somebody interprets. But like I said a moment ago, it's nothing that actually builds up the church. It's nothing that's actually grounded in truth. It's just like, hey, God wants you to have a nice day. Well, that certainly helps. (laughs) Tongues then, when there was interpretation, could be beneficial and could build up the church, could be positive, but never in Corinth because there was never any translation. There was never any interpretation. So he, again, is saying that, no, no, no. You guys all want to speak in tongues and you're all speaking in tongues. That's not helping the church, which means it's not the greatest gift. It's not the highest pinnacle thing. Not there in Corinth. Good Lord, it was just unbelievable what they were doing. If there's no when tongues are spoken, if there's no interpretation, and that also means that the words have to be good, if there's no interpretation, the words don't actually build up. I mean, nobody's literally built up. And I think that you couldn't have interpretation in the Corinthian church. Why? Because they weren't speaking in real languages. It was the gibberish guess what? And I've said this before. Since gibberish is not a literal, real language of the world, there is no real, literal interpretation of it. The only people in the known universe that can interpret gibberish are babies. When one baby speaks, you know, whatever they do, they speak in their little tongues when they're too young to put syllables together, right? I remember my kids did this. The one next to him knows exactly what he's saying and tells mom, we both want cheeseburgers. <laughs> Wait a minute, that sounds like you came up with that. No, it's what Jimmy said. They know. That's it. That's the, that's the miracle of tongues right there. I mean, that's as close as you get to it. There's no translation or interpretation for gibberish. So prophecy is, is preeminent. Firstly, here, I think with Paul's point here in, in this in, in verse 5 here is because it doesn't require any kind of interpretation. It doesn't have to have another member there with another spiritual gift to make it work. It doesn't need that prophecy. You just, you just, it just preaches and it comes right out. So it doesn't have to have interpretation. It's prevenient over tongues because tongues must be accompanied by interpretation. Apart from interpretation tongues is nothing more than showing off or attempting to show off and that's exactly what you see today verse 6 now brothers if i come to you speaking in tongues how will i benefit you unless i bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching to strengthen the preeminence of prophecy over tongues paul uses himself as an illustration if he an apostle came to the Corinthians speaking in tongues, but there was no interpretation, how could any of them benefit? Without interpretation, there would be no way for the church to receive some, as he puts, revelation or some knowledge or some prophecy or some teaching or anything from the scripture, anything at all that's good and beneficial and going to build up the church. If there's no interpretation, Paul's saying, even if I, you think that I have a higher rank, and I don't think he saw himself that way, but I don't know about you, but on the spectrum, tongues, are, tongues is lower, uh, prophecy is higher, fill a pastor's lower, apostles at the top, right? This is the way that we would think. In Roman Catholicism, Pope is way up here. Non-Pope is way down here. So just in terms of hierarchy in our own thinking, Paul as an apostle is at the top, and he's saying, even if I at the top, it's not how I see myself, but it's how you see me, even if I came to you speaking a whole bunch of tongues and there was no interpretation, what good would it do? This is what he's saying. He uses himself as an example. Any message is useless if it cannot be comprehended. Can we just get that down right now as a baseline truth? Doesn't matter what's being said. If it cannot be understood, it does no good. It's useless. In verses 7 and 8, Paul continues to strengthen the preeminence of prophecy over tongues through another illustration. This this time he uses musical instruments. Verses 7 and 9, even if lifeless instruments such as a flute or harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? I feel the same way over hip-hop. And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if With your tongue, you utter speech that is not intelligible. How will anyone know what is said? For you will just be speaking into the air. Imagine somebody blowing an instrument into the air. When you're speaking without interpretation, it's like doing that. Just think of what he's saying here. This illustration is such a good illustration. If a musician were to take his flute, is that a flautist? Is that what they're called? I like flautas, chicken flautas. What about a flautist? Is that what they're called? If a musician were to take his flute, a flautist, and start blowing into it just indiscriminately, or maybe a harpist picked up a harp, I don't know how you pick those up, but maybe you walk up to it and get in front of it or behind it, and they just started banging on it and strumming it, trying to play it like Eddie Van Halen, trying to do a finger lick on it, you know? If they just came up to it and just started randomly blowing into it or just strumming away, what would you hear? Noise sounds. How long would it take for you to become annoyed? How about Charlie Brown on that piano for a half hour before the service began by Ryan? Actually, I could understand what was being played and I still got annoyed. I'm kidding. I love you, Ryan. Don't do it again. No, I mean, seriously, think about this. How many of you have ever taken up an instrument? What did it sound like when you first started playing it? (laughs) Susie, shut up in there. That's your mom, right? I mean, it was terrible, right? I remember when I tried to play guitar for about four seconds. It was a disaster. I only knew one song, and I didn't even know how to play it well. And then I would try to sing with it, and I just gave my kids fodder for later. I remember what it was like when you first started playing an instrument. Or how about if you played an instrument for a while, and you put it down for Couple of years, then you pick it back up and try to go at it. It's not like it was. But Paul is saying if a musician were to just blow into a flute or start strumming in, you know, just, uh, just crazily on a harp, it would just make a lot of noise. It would just be a bunch of sound and it would be annoying. Would we consider that to be music? Only if your kid's very young wow, you're making beautiful music while bearing false witness in your heart, right? What, ha- what do you need to be able to hear music? You need distinct notes being played, is what Paul says, right? You have to play distinct notes. And then he says, what if the bugle boy of Company B, is that Glenn Miller? Who is it? Who is it? Andrew. Bruce should know. He's a 1,000 years old. He wrote the song. Andrew Sisters. Andrew Sisters. The Andrew Sisters. Okay, see what I don't know? Yeah, I don't know how Dave, David knows this, but we'll talk later in an elder meeting. If, the, if a bugle boy were to step forward and begin to blow into his bugle without controlling his diaphragm and breath and positioning his lips just right, what would the soldiers hear? noise, would they prepare for battle or look over at the bugle boy and go, what on earth while the enemy's approaching? It was like the time during a worship rehearsal, there's a video of it, it's hilarious, and it was a real song that was being played, but they were practicing a worship song, and there was a saxophonist who had a part in it, and right in the middle of the practice of the worship song, he starts playing Careless Whisper." on his saxophone, and the entire band looks over at him, they're staring at him like, why are you playing Careless Whisper? You know the song, right? Famous for its saxophone solo. Nobody has saxophone solos anymore. I think we should bring them back. Find out what church that was. They probably do it every weekend. But what would happen? Now, listen, I got an illustration for you that's better than that. I was just at a funeral the other day, and it was a military funeral, and there was a soldier there who played a bugle. And if she had stepped forward with all those people there surrounding this casket, draped with a flag, very sad moment, and, and had stepped forward and, and just started blasting away into this thing, do you think that that would have honored the deceased soldier? No, she played taps. We knew what she was playing. And it was beautiful. And I even looked at Rachel who was standing next to me. She had like what tear in her eye. But if she had just gotten up there and, I mean, what if she had tried to play Careless Whisper on a bugle? And she just played it perfectly and slowly and melodically. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful moment that honored that fallen saint and that soldier. That guy was in the Navy eons ago. And Paul is, is, is using that as an illustration. How, how are the troops going to prepare for battle if the bugle boy or whomever steps forward and doesn't play what he's supposed to play. They, they got to play distinct sounds, not indistinct sounds. What, what is he doing in verse 9? He's really just applying the illustration to the Corinthians now. When they speak in tongues and there is no interpretation. It's, it's just like a musician that doesn't know how to play his instrument. Nobody understands it. Nobody can pick that out as a song. It's like the Bugle Boys playing some, not playing something that's going to call them to battle or at a funeral with the taps or whatever. That's what tongues in a church without interpretation is like. It's like indistinct noises and indistinct sounds because those people are hearing languages they don't understand. It's no better than stuff that's supposed to be music that isn't music. That's what he's saying here. They are just, when they speak in tongues and there's no interpretation, it's just like those people blowing into those instruments and strumming those instruments. They're just speaking unintelligibly into the air, they're just making noise. And guess what noise doesn't do? Doesn't build up the church, does it? No. Doesn't honor the deceased soldier doesn't wow and woo us while an orchestra is doing its job. That's his point. Verses 10 to 12, Paul hit them with yet another illustration to strengthen the preeminence of prophecy over tongues. This time he uses glossa. There's that word again. It's the Greek word for languages. He says in verse 10 to 12, there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. In verse 10, Paul leaves no room for doubt concerning what tongues were. They are different languages in the world, not ecstatic gibberish or angelic speech or God language or secret prayer words or any of that stuff. They're none of what they're said to be today. They're just the different languages of the world right there. Every earthly language, he says, has its own meaning. And when a person speaks in their particular language to a person of another language, they can't understand what's being said. They are foreigners to one another is what he's saying. But prophecy is preeminent because it does not cause communication breakdown like tongues will when there is no interpretation like at Corinth. Verse 12, Paul uses logic to encourage the Corinthians since they were eager for manifestations of the spirit, that's spiritual gifts, and since tongues were not helpful to that body because there was no interpretation, they should strive toward the higher, more preeminent gifts since they excel in building up the church, namely prophecy. Verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret This was Paul's way of safeguarding against an extreme response to his admonitions. He did not want the Corinthians to try to stifle and or totally remove the, you know, true tongues from the congregation. It was a legitimate manifestation of the Spirit at the time. To suppress tongues would have been to suppress the Spirit, and that's never wise. Instead, he exhorts them to pray for an interpreter, whether it be the one who's speaking or someone else. Look, if you just insist on speaking in tongues, make sure there's interpretation because the goal is always to build up the church and you cannot build it up without interpretation. That's what he's saying. Then and only then would the gift of tongues be even close to useful. And down in verse 28, he literally tells them that if if you don't have an interpreter, if you cannot furnish one or if you cannot self-interpret, then just be quiet altogether while you're gathered. When we combine verse 13 with verse 28, you get a universal prohibition. If there is no interpretation, there is to be no tongue speaking during a worship service. Let that sink in. If you don't have interpretation, don't do it is what he's saying. And what do we see today? Endless tongues being spoken and no interpretation. This is a a universal collateral across the board prohibition. And there is no exception to this rule. Tongues, according to Paul, according to Scripture, will either be done right with interpretation or not at all while the people of God are gathered. That's that's the rule. That's the rule in this text. Verses 14 to 17. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what is being said? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the, one, uh, but the other person is not being built up. Why? Because they can't understand what's being said. And what Paul is saying here addresses followers of Plato, the famous philosopher and iamblichus was another philosopher very popular in that day they came before this time but they were very popular plato and iamblichus and they believe that it is possible for the spirit of a highly devout person to connect and speak with god while the rest of their body remain in its normal state you could be at the grocery store shopping and worshiping god in your spirit while picking out nutella off this shelf today buddhists call this phenomenon nirvana It's a super high spiritual state that you could allegedly reach. In ancient Corinth, pagan worshipers thought that a combination of alcohol consumption and ecstatic speech would bring them into this transcendent state or a deeper level of spirituality. The basic belief is that it is possible for the spirit of a man or spirit of a woman to engage in worship apart from the rest of their temporal body. Oh, this is is grounded in Eastern mysticism and all this. It all comes from Plato. As a final illustration, Paul borrows from Platonic thought to illustrate the absolute necessity of interpretation. He is saying that when a person prays in a tongue and there is no interpretation, a disconnection occurs like in Platonism. It's like His spirit is is praying and communing with God, but his mind is fruitless because it doesn't know what is happening. This is what he says. Now, something very similar, he, he doesn't really care about Platonism, but it's the point he's trying to make about tongues without interpretation. You have a disconnect between the spirit in a person and the mind of a person. The spirit knows what's going on, but the mind and the rest of the body doesn't. A total disconnect between the spirit and the rest of the body which is very interesting and bizarre. It's a weird theology, probably gave birth to Gnosticism later. But something similar occurs in the congregation when tongues are used and there is no interpretation. When a person prays or sings or offers thanksgiving to God in a tongue and there is no interpretation, there is an obvious disconnection between the one speaking and the listeners kind of like in Platonism, where there's a disconnection between the mind and the the spirit. There's a disconnection between the one speaking and the listeners. They cannot understand him. Therefore, they cannot agree and say amen, as Paul says here, or they cannot be built up. Tongues performed in a congregation without interpretation only creates disconnections, and God cannot be truly worshiped where there are disconnections. When people in the congregation are trying to figure out what's going on because someone in the corner over there is rattling off some kind of gibberish called tongues, they're not worshiping God in that moment. They're trying to figure out what the heck is going on in the corner. We have to be attentive, contemplative to engage in worship, thoughtful. There cannot be a disconnection between the spirit and soul and person you can only worship God in spirit and in truth and that means with your heart and with your mind that is a direct contradiction of Platonism and Gnosticism and every other ism and that's what Paul is doing here God must be worshiped in spirit which is the seat of our emotions and in and in truth which is with our minds that are full of the truth true spiritual worship involves the whole person mind body and spirit or soul Platonism falls short since it only involves the spirit. And so does tongues when there is no interpretation. People just do not know what's going on. How can they worship? Paul just obliterates Platonism when he says, I will pray with my spirit and I will pray with my mind also. They're connected. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. He's showing there's no disconnect in worship. But Platonism creates it. The Corinthians were creating it because they believed in Platonism and because they believed in tongues without interpretation. Verse 17, it's like Paul is saying, it could be that you are giving thanks to your tongues, and that's fine and dandy, but you aren't building anyone up because nobody can understand you. It's that simple. The inference I draw here is that God desires that we focus on building each other up through a proper use of of our gifts. He prefers that we build each other up rather than pray or sing or thank Him in tongues. He wants the body of Christ to use its gifts, to use its spiritual gifts to build up the body that is more important to God than rattling off any kind of prayer or tongue or anything to Him. So making disciples is a higher plane of spirituality than speaking in tongues. It's much higher than tongues. And when you have tongues with no interpretation, there is nothing there, it's it's just a show. Last two verses, 18 and 19, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. Wow. Nevertheless, in church I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Talk about nail in the coffin. This is the final portion of his argument for the preeminence of prophecy over tongues. And he begins by thanking God for giving him the spiritual gift of tongues. Paul had this gift. And yet there is not a single example in the New Testament of him exercising it. Not even in the book of Acts where you see it most. We don't have any example of Paul doing it. But Paul tells us very clearly that he had it. But we don't see him using it anywhere. JMac again. Paul knew what the proper use of the true gift involved and did not involve. So he knew what tongues was about and what it wasn't about. And he says, we can be sure that Paul did not use the gift in a perverted way or for personal gratification. He's speaking of the Corinthians. He may have used it as it was used at Pentecost to bring a supernatural message to those God wanted to reach and as a miraculous sign, verifying the gospel and his apostolic authority. And listen to this. MacArthur says this, yet he considered, speaking of Paul, yet Paul considered that the gift was so low in value as compared to his other gifts and ministries that in none of his writings does he mention it in any specific use or does he ever mention any other believer using it? Wow. One of the arguments that we've been making for the preeminence of prophecy over the course of many weeks is that tongues falls off and you don't even see it anymore in the New Testament. And that's what MacArthur's saying. And according to Paul's own testimony here, I think he must have possessed a very potent manifestation of the gift of tongues because he says he spoke more tongues than all of the Corinthians. And I get the idea. He's saying of all of you put together. The Corinthians were, in a sense, novices, but Paul was like an expert. He was a journeyman. They would have been Apprentices. Now, he writes verse 18 not to boast, but to set up verse 19 where he states his own personal preference. When the church is gathered, Paul says he would rather speak five words with his mind in order to instruct others. What's he talking about? The gift of prophecy. He's talking about prophesying. He would rather prophesy even five words than to speak 10,000 words in a tongue that no one can understand. What was happening in that church? Nobody was prophesying. They were speaking in tongues that nobody could understand. He says, I would prefer to do the exact opposite of you. In other words, giving a message that would instruct or encourage his hearers was more valuable to Paul than a limitless number of words in a tongue that was incomprehensible to those same listeners. So we have to ask what was Paul actually demonstrating here in these 19 verses? <coughs> Obviously he's demonstrating his preference. I would what is the context? I would rather I would rather pro- prophesy even five words that help people than speak in a gibberish or anything else that's not helpful. So he is demonstrating his preference. He has been demonstrating the preeminence of prophecy, right? Over tongues, but what is he actually demonstrating here? It's very simple. It is love for the body of Christ. This godly man had a whole arsenal of spiritual gifts—tongues—and he had both forms of prophecy. Firstly, he had the revelatory. I mean, we're reading Revelation that he wrote the Spirit through him. He had that. He had the 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 um, the expositional type of gift as well. He had a great many other gifts. I think he had the gift of hospitality and others. This guy was gifted like unlike most believers. It's unbelievable. So many gifts and beyond. But since love was his priority, he focused on using gifts that produce the most good in the church. You see, the message of chapter 14, especially these first 19 verses, isn't merely that prophecy is preeminent over tongues. It is, but that's not really the broader, most important message here. It is that love is preeminent over all. And if we, as the people of God, in a long line following Paul, in a sense, if we are constrained by love, as we should be, then we will seek after spiritual gifts or some other good thing that will help us love believers and build up the church. That's what love does. It wants in with, within us so badly, a constrainment, a deep, passionate desire to care for our brothers and sisters, even to the point of looking for ways to do that. And if a spiritual gift will help me do that, then then maybe I would pray that God would give me that gift. Maybe he doesn't, and he expects me to do it with the gifts I have. I think that's the better way to go. But it is looking for ways, looking for gifts, looking for opportunities to show love to the brethren by building them up. That's the message here. Why is prophecy preeminent? Because it helps you do that better than tongues ever will. It's always about love and building each other up. That's the point. That is the point. I'll close with a phenomenal quote from Sinclair Ferguson. I love this one. He says, our first priority in ministry must be love. You think about your ministry and you're going to engage in that ministry, it's got to be coming from a heart of love, love for Christ and love for his people. If you don't have love there, you're like one of the Corinthians, man. Our first priority in ministry must be love. And then he, 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 he says what that looks like. Firstly, love for God's word, and then love for God's people. And then love for God's glorious appearing. That's the return of Christ. Love at the center is what we must aim for. That's what we go after and we look for ways to love our brothers and sisters and neighbors and everyone else. That's the message here.